So Money episode 1217, hit the Palapu, entrepreneur, investor, and author. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. I do think it's important that if you are someone with a lot of privilege who has accomplished a lot and you get the question of how do you do it all or how do you juggle it all, to be honest about the fact that you are not doing everything. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. We are in conversation today with Hitha Palapu, who is a self-described multi-hyphenate, an entrepreneur, investor, and author. She's also the CEO of Roshan Pharmaceuticals and an investor in over 15 women-led and women-focused companies. She has a book coming out later this fall called We're Speaking, The Life Lessons of Kamala Harris. Our discussion takes us to many places, many interesting pockets of the universe, including a discussion around privilege, why even if you grew up with it, even if you have it, a lot of it, how to own it and be proud of your success. Some of us have guilt around our privilege. We don't like to talk about it. We feel like it means we can't be as proud or as deserving of our success. But having privilege and being proud are not mutually exclusive. Hitha is the daughter of immigrant parents. She talks about her childhood and today what drives her to keep so many projects and tasks going on at the same time, how she manages her time. And she doesn't leave without giving some advice for those of us who want to invest in other companies like she has. She is an avid angel investor and she'll walk us through some of the ways to get involved without a lot of money. Here's Hitha Palapu. Hit the Palapu. Welcome to So Money. Finally. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yours is one of like my first podcast loves. And you've been so generous sharing it on all your platforms. You have such a devoted audience. And I have to say, probably many people who listen to So Money first knew Hitha, then they knew Farnoosh. Why we waited so long to get together is beyond me, but Let's make the most of our time together. And there is a lot of ground that we want to cover. You know, you, uh, in your bio, you call yourself a multi-hyphenate, which is true. You're an entrepreneur, an investor, an author, a mother of two sons. And I think that's going to mirror the scope of our conversation in that we're going to talk about a lot of things. We're going to talk about privilege. We're going to talk about being the daughter of immigrants and how that shaped you, running a business with your family, and angel investing, which is something that you are passionate about now and want to educate more people on. And then, of course, you've got this important book coming out later in the fall called We're Speaking, The Life Lessons of Kamala Harris, How to Use Your Voice, Be Assertive, and Own Your Story. So, whoo, okay. <laughs> Let's start, as I always like to start with the beginnings, where we're going in this conversation. We need to start with the foundation, which is your childhood, single daughter of immigrant parents. You traveled as a young kid. You're I was reading about your dad on your Instagram feed coming to this country as a scientist, but really not 
any money lurking at McDonald's. Fast forward to today, running a uh, a major pharmaceutical company with him. And so before we get to the arc of that story, tell me about life as a little girl hit the, let's say, six years old. <laughs> six years old was a good age. That was the first time we actually moved that I remembered that we were moving because before then we moved when I was two. That's when the memories start to come. So I picked exactly. six because you can't really remember three, but six we know. Exactly. So we were moving from outside of Columbus, Ohio to outside of Philadelphia. My dad was taking took on a new job at Smith Klein Beecham before it became GSK. And we had, I'm, I'm really lucky in that that was a really great year, despite it being a year of total uncertainty. My parents said this was an adventure, like we're moving, let's ha- try out this new thing. I met my best friend like three months after moving to Philly. Our moms became best friends. So it was a really fun year. I started second grade at one school, switched halfway in the year to another school because my parents had some house issues at the first house they bought. The builder just sort of pieced out <laughs> and they had to find a new house. And my mother being who she was, like chased him down and got her money back, which that's an early money memory wow. for me is mom just be like so cognizant and careful. And because, you know, it was a time where I just joined her after school. So her like knocking down this developer's <laughs> door until he answered for her to get her money back. Uh, a note to listeners, if you give anybody your money, get their address, you need to know where they live. I always say, if I know where you live, I'm, you're, this money will be good because I will literally live outside your door if you don't make good on this payment. Exactly. And that is very much Mama Palapu's MO. <laughs> Six was a really um, big year because we also had my cousin, my dad's eldest brother's daughter. She and her husband had just moved to the States. He was pursuing his master's in Florida. She didn't know anyone. So she lived with us. She was expecting their first child. And so because there was about a seven-year age difference between me and her daughter, Neela, for the first time, I had that sense of what it's like to have a little sister, which there were moments I loved and there were moments I hated. So I really got a good sibling experience there. It was a very idyllic childhood. Like we had a home with a big backyard and neighborhood full of kids. I was out playing a lot, but I also was perfectly content, like sitting on the couch and reading a book cover to cover. Dinners were, we always had family dinner every night. Mom would cook. I would set the table and we decompressed about the day. And what I remember most of all in family dinners is I would ask dad what he was working on, like what kind of pharmaceutical products he was working on. And he always explained it to me very clearly. He never said, oh, you're six, you'll never understand, or you're seven, you'll never understand. He took the time to explain at a level I could understand that would usually cause more questions and that he would then answer. So I don't know if he realized he was doing this, but he was planting seeds of um, working in pharma, I guess, one day or in sciences from a very young age. He also had a very unique punishment for me whenever I acted out, which was to take the medical dictionary and he would assign me 10 (laughs) words and I'd have to write a report within an hour, like including all 10 of those words. So I was also a very strange child in that I knew more about lymphoma and leukemia and tumors than any 
seven-year-old had any business knowing about, but I'm grateful for the early education. Yeah. Curious to know now as an adult woman, as the CEO of your father's pharmaceutical company, what punishments he makes you endure, if any, when you have disputes, no comment. (laughs) It's usually not letting me open the good wine. And having to drink like the not so good one. <laughs> Hold that thought. I want to get into more of the, uh, you know, the relationship, the intergenerational mm-hmm. dynamics of running a company with family. Funny enough, I didn't know this. Your father started this at 55. Yeah. So uh, up until that point, you have described your upbringing as like sort of born on third base, privilege. Talk about some of those Mm-hmm. Things. I mean, even just hearing you talk about being around loved ones, setting the table for dinner every night, that consistency, that is not everyone's life. And, and that's the richness that I think sometimes gets overlooked. We think, oh, you have like the three-car garage and the manicured lawn. But what is happening inside the house, right? That is not sometimes about money, but it's about the dynamic of your family sometimes. And it sounds like you had a really great dynamic. An incredible dynamic. And that's to say that we didn't have our rough times. We certainly did. But there was always this sense of we're going to get together. We're going to talk it out. We're going to talk things through. We don't go to bed angry, like from a very young age. My parents modeled that for me. So if they got disagreed about something in front of me, they made sure I saw the resolution of that. And I think that's very unique. In South Asian households, they're very progressive in that manner. The second thing, too, is that we talked a lot about our feelings. Like the South Asian community is has a stigma about mental health. It's something we don't talk about nearly enough. And certainly even to this day, if I say the talk about depression and anxiety, both of which I've experienced over the course of my life, I see my mom kind of give me this look. And it's not that she doesn't believe me, but you know, for someone who hasn't experienced it, it is a very different thing to try to just be like, well, just just be happy. And it's like, and that's where we kind of agree to disagree. And we kind of put a pin in that conversation and change the subject because we know that's never going to be a winning argument. She's never going to understand or empathize with my experience. And I also know that she always is there to love me. She will, she's always there. She will always love me. She'll always be there for me. So her not understanding this one experience is not a hill I need to die on because of everything else she provides for me. I have a therapist for those conversations. Your mother is not going to be the end all go to. We all have learned that the hard way. Um, I want to go back to something that you said, which was so astute. We can talk about that in a financial context too. This idea of watching your parents argue, but then also seeing the resolution. In the context of money, right? A lot of us grow up with parents who argued about money minded that. I never saw them agree on things after that. And I think that was the chip that was missing sometimes for me as I got older. You know, I then grew up with this uh, real fear about like getting into a marriage and, and like having money disputes because I never saw the resolution. And seeing the resolution... There have been studies on this. I have. I remember reading a study. I think it was Harvard, probably, uh, where they, they. It's part of being, you know, that book Grit. Mm-hmm. And I've I've had the author on. I think that's what how you develop grit is. It's not that you 
avoid the hardness, work through the hardness because at the end of it is success. And if you have experience with that, if you flex that muscle enough where you know like, okay, this is going to be hard, but then there's always going to be a sort of a a resolution at the end. It's what gets you through the hard stuff. Your parents modeled that for you. Yeah. And advice for listeners, you know, if you're having disputes with your partner over money and your kids are in the room, that's okay. As long as they see uh, an hour later or a week later, you came up with a budget or a plan and involve them in that as well. And I think about the time when I was 13, my father had an opportunity to go to England on a secondment and oversee the um, European submission for one of Glaxo's, um, Smith-Klein Beecham's biggest products at the time. And so we moved to England for two years. And back then, I, I want to like, I got the opportunity to see this and be a part of the decision-making process, which I thought was incredibly valuable. My parents asked me, would you rather stay and go to an American school or would you want to enroll into an English school? Knowing that we were planning to come back to the States at some point, I said, an American school is fine. They also walked me through what the expat package is in the UK. Like he, he was given a car. He was given a very generous housing allowance. And like business class tickets to fly back twice a year to the States um, for the whole family. And my parents said, we get this money. It's not that we have to use this. We're given the money. So we're making the decision to rent an apartment versus getting a house where all the other American expats live because we want to be able to use that and we can fly coach. It's totally fine. We've been flying coach our entire lives to be able to explore and travel around Europe. This is an incredible opportunity for us to have experiences we never would have if we stayed outside of Philadelphia. So let's really focus on that. And so I want to say that I grew up with a lot of privilege, financial, as well as a richness of experiences. But especially at 13, I really value my parents making me a part of the decision-making process, as well as walking me through the financial decisions they had agreed upon together. And kind of from that point on, I had a hand in helping pick out the homes we would live in or how we would decorate. And my mom, like bringing her little like notebook to write down the cost of slabs for countertops and tiles and whatnot and saying, do we like this this much that we have to pay this? Or can we find something a little less expensive at Lowe's? That got me thinking about money in a way that how, um, how much everything costs. And it sounds like through the process, you ultimately became not just the daughter, but an inv you had a stake. You were at the table. You had a seat at the table. Who, who does that with their kids, right? And and um, I think that's extremely unique. Now as an adult woman with your own mm -hmm. life and your own family, you're still very close to your parents. You've talked about how the home that you live in, your parents uh, paid for that. Mm -hmm. How does that, what's that relationship like now? Because some might say that's too much involvement, you know, because then there's an indebtedness. There's this feeling of like, well, I have to do what they want because they've provided me with so much and they continue to provide so much for me. You know, I could see how some people view it that way. I My experience is mine. I don't know anything different. So to try to, I guess, envision another option. Listen, I mean, if my husband at any point felt uncomfortable with this level of financial support, we would have politely declined it and it would have been fine. But the truth is my parents want to be very close with their grandkids. They are here often 
as often as they like to be and choose to be. And so having a space that all three generations can live in and occupy comfortably, it's great to have a home that supports that. Now, also, they did buy it for us. We pay for everything. So every little renovation we wanted to do, everything was on us. And so it was a balancing of budget. And yeah, tax, property taxes and maintaining the home. It's not just buying the home and then you're done. It's right. keep us quite a bit, as you know. As Absolutely. Taxes, all of that. Manhattan property taxes are like, it is what it is. You know what? I live in my dream city and my dream home. So it is the price of living here and it's one I am happy to pay. This is such a different kind of story on So Money. You know, last week or a week or two ago, we had on uh, Jen Risher, who is the author of We Need to Talk, a memoir about wealth, about how she fell into a lot of money thanks to working at places like, I believe it was Microsoft and then her husband at Amazon in the 90s and they IPO'd and she made a boatload of money. And this sort of secret that she held for many years was that, you know what, this feels really awkward to be rich. And she was admittedly ashamed, embarrassed to talk about her privilege and her wealth. And I really appreciate that narrative coming out now because we, you know, if we're going to talk about money, let's talk about all the the types of money, all the ways that we were raised. And, and you said something really important before we were recording, which is that admitting that you have privilege and saying, I'm also really proud of my accomplishments or I'm, I'm yeah. successful. These aren't mutually exclusive thoughts. Like you can be both of those things. Yeah. How do you want more people to understand privilege and how should we be talking about it differently? I think it starts with people who have privilege owning however that is for them in whatever way is also comfortable for them. Because I also understand this can be a bit of opening Pandora's box and you need to have your boundaries of what you will share and what you won't share very well established. But for me, it's been, listen, it's anyone who knows how to Google well enough can figure out that some of this information. So I'm not sharing anything that is groundbreaking. That said, I mean, I'm open to say, here are all the people who work on my team that help me produce five smart reads and content online. I have an incredible, highly experienced team helping me run Roshan Pharmaceuticals. I have a team at home helping me hold things down here. And the list of things I do is very small compared to all the things I don't do. And I never want for a second for someone to feel bad because they're comparing themselves to me and my entire team, not just me and what I can do. And I also, there is a responsibility in that when you do employ people, how can you offer them flexibility in a way that makes sense for that role? How can you be a good leader? Are you paying them a dignified wage? Are you paying them in however you can? And so it's very important to me to offer as much flexibility great wages. Everyone is a part-time contractor, so no benefits, maybe one day. But that is what we do. And we are very, we, it's just how do you want to be treated, you know, and treating people that way. But I do think it's important that if you are someone with a lot of privilege, who has accomplished a lot, and you get the question of how do you do it all, or how do you juggle it all, to be honest about the fact that you are not doing everything. All of it, right. That you're investing in 
round the clock childcare, that you have a stay at home spouse or you have part-time work. I know. Uh, and truthfully, um, I could be doing more, but I don't want this, you know, this ecosystem around me all the time. I, that's me, you know, I, mm-hmm. I yes, I could have higher top line numbers maybe every year. I could bring in more money, but then I also have like more people I'm responsible for. And for me, that's just not my I get, I'm already getting a lot of anxiety talking about that. You know, I, in my life, I've, I, at most I've had one full-timer, uh, a few freelancers, but like, I, I have friends that have teams, like literally like 10 people that show up to their house every day. And I'm like, why? So that you can be on Instagram every five minutes. Like, nope. For me, that's not worth the payoff. And that goes to something that we should talk more about is success is not how much money you've raised. Right. It is not necessarily how much, how big your team is or what locations you're opening. Success is, am I living the life that I want to live? Is my company profitable and growing? Are my kids happy and healthy? And I feel like I have, I feel satisfied as a parent and my career. And we don't talk about that enough. So I do think press needs to reframe how we view success because there are so many incredible stories that are not being told as a part of this that I think are some of the most successful businesses. But I guess the way we personify entrepreneurial success in the press, it's never viewed that way. Yes. We, we use terms like playing big, playing small. We glamorize these entrepreneurs that claim to make, you know, eight figures, seven figures. But I'm always curious, like, what are they taking home? <laughs> and what does the home life look like? And do they see their kids? And and all of these things. Let's fast forward a bit. We've learned a lot about Hitha at age six and throughout the years, your family dynamic. Today, you're a mom of two. You have many, oh my gosh, you're so busy. You're, you, no one can, I'm, I'm so grateful that you've made time for this podcast. You're very active on social. You have a, a wonderful Webby honored social series called hashtag five smart reads. You're still doing that mm-hmm. every weekday morning, but I have a team of contributors that also mm-hmm. with their great perspective, unique perspectives and narratives that I love learning from. You're a speaker. You have a book, another book coming out. And of course, you're the CEO of Roshan Pharmaceuticals that your father started. Do you feel as though because your parents work so hard, daughter of an immigrant, like what motivates you to do all the things? First question. I think it goes back to something really important that my mom told me when I was a kid and someone asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. She was very much nudging me to be a doctor. Like, typical. Really? That surprised me. So, so surprising. Um, she was like, she's going to be a, like, you're going to be a doctor. And I said, but I want to be a fashion designer. And she was like, you could be a doctor and a fashion designer. So, and is something she, I don't, I, don't, I asked her about this. I go, did you really think about like how you phrased it? She goes, no, I just wanted you to agree to think about pursuing medicine. And this was the easiest way to do it. But that's, that and kind of changed my life because it showed me I could do more than one thing. And so from a very young age, I was very much like, I'm going to do several things. My I don't do well just doing one thing. I have to kind of have something creative to balance the highly technical elements of 
my professional career, which has started off in tech sales and then went into pharma, where I've been in for the past 12 years. What's your day like? I can't imagine <laughs> running, like being the CEO of a pharmaceutical company and having time for anything else, let alone all the things that you're doing. So how do you manage your time? So I have like a pretty, a mini morning routine that is like I meditate in bed and then I scribble down my five smart, the, um, the five minute journal and just like some things I'm grateful for. And I think that just sort of puts your brain in a, in a good headspace. I read the day's entry of the Daily Stoic if I'm feeling it. Sometimes I'm not feeling it and I'll take my Kindle into the bathroom and like keep reading whichever romance novel I'm reading at the time while brushing my teeth. And if I wake up early enough where the kids are still asleep, I try to sneak in just like a little bit of yoga or stretching before they get going because I've noticed it wakes me up. It puts me in a much better mood that I can handle the morning rush of getting them dressed and getting them fed and packing backpacks and getting them to school. We're also very lucky that they go to school like a five-minute walk away. And that is a gift. Like the best gift, wonderful schools that are right for them. So they're off by 8.30 every day. And then it's it's to work. And every day is so different because, you know, when I was knee deep in fundraising, that was all I did. So it's checking my master list of prospects and like, when did I follow up with this person? Had this person signed the paperwork? Have I gotten the wire? And following up, following up, following up. No one ever tells you fundraising is mostly email. It's very little to do with the conversations. Stop asking me how my day was. We're all just emailing all day long. That's it. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. But that would be what a fundraising time was. Then there are times where the money is closed and I'm like, time to deploy capital into developing this product. And that's really where I listen and let my teams explain. Obviously, when things go wrong and things always go wrong in pharmaceutical development, and there are some careful budget conversations to make, it's us looking at what went wrong, how much is this going to cost to run this as like experiment again or run this line again and whatnot, managing cash flow and all of that. But I will say at this stage of the company and with kind of the partnership we have, my day-to-day is not so much on the fundraising or closing of money. It really is, are we, did the money come from our partner? What's on deck? What are we working on? What's going on? And being as supportive to my team as possible and liaising with the partner to give them updates and coordinating calls on that front. So we're really in technical mode right now of driving the development further with preparing for a clinical trial and preparing to manufacture the submission batches at FDA, making sure everything is ordered and dealing with the COVID lead times because everything is prioritized for COVID. So we have to order equipment and components and raw materials six months in advance versus like four to six weeks in advance. So Mm -hmm. it's managing that and managing those POs. It's starting to bring on some more help to help with that operational work. So we can, my executive team can really be focused on the development and the strategy. So it's, it's a good phase to be in now. Um, I'm glad we had a successful seed raise. I don't think our product and our company would have been the right company for venture and to go down that route because I can't project the 10x return 
it in a realistic way that venture capitalists want to see. And I get that even family offices want to see at least maybe a seven to eight X on a pharmaceutical or a life sciences type company. And I can't even, I can, I could probably make that math work, but that doesn't make me feel good. And if you're taking millions of dollars from people and they're putting that in investing in your company and you can't with certainty and confidence project that it didn't work out. So going partnering with another company makes the most sense. And it's Mm -hmm. one that I'm really grateful we've um, entered into and it helps me sleep at night because I will tell you when I was before then, it was a lot of sleepless nights of, oh my God. These are all my dad's friends that work with us. And they're going to think I'm just some stupid kid who had no business running this company and having this role. That's a lot of pressure. And I think that's what I haven't talked so much about is that that pressure, because these are people who have known me since I was a child. Like I used to call half of them uncle. Oh, yeah. Have you ever experienced pushback or belittling? I don't know. What What is it? Is it just in your head or have you actually experienced it? I would say one of my team members, he has his process and my process is not his process now. And so <laughs> that's things, very, very judicial of you. And us, But I will say there are things I really appreciate, like his attention to detail and certain things about his process that I've come to appreciate and adopt. And that makes things a lot easier. So I think also in being a leader, you also have to be like, how can I get the best out of my team? And he and I like litigating what's the right way to do something is not the best and highest use of our time. It doesn't take much, it doesn't take a significant amount of effort for me to do it, th- certain things in the way he likes to do it in a process that he is comfortable with. So I've been happy to adjust to that. That's very nice of you to say. You you brought up venture capital. Two more things I want to talk about before we go. One is your advice for prospective angel investors. This sounds very sophisticated. It sounds like you only start doing this when you're super, super rich. So I really want you to break this down for us and make it a little bit more, maybe democratize it a little bit and and talk about some of the avenues that are more accessible to people, things to look out for. And then we want to talk about the life lessons of Kamal Harris, your book, We're Speaking. We're speaking. I'm speaking. We're speaking. (laughs) I can't wait for this book to come out. But talk a little bit about your experience with angel investing and advice, like your top three tips? I will say angel investing probably saved my, like is the reason why I actually enjoy budgeting and managing my personal finances because I'm acutely aware of, I could buy a bunch of this random clothes that I don't even need, or I could make an angel investment. And so that for me, and that's what to your point, you can start with smaller size checks. These are not $25,000, checks you are writing. Certainly you can write that. However, you know, when you're getting started, there are some companies, if they're raising a pre-seed round off of an idea or an angel round, they'll take a $5,000 check. Some will take a $1,000 check. If you also are passionate about what they're building, you can provide value to them, but you're not going to make their life a living hell, which... I think every founder has dealt with frustrating investors who want updates or who want a quick return. And if that's what you're looking for, angel investing is not it. It is you're making a bet on an idea and really a team to deliver that if it works, it'll be a great payout. And if it doesn't work, 
you're not endangering your net worth in a significant way that you're putting your um, nest egg in jeopardy. And so there are kind of two paths into, into angel investing. In order to be an accredited investor where you are writing checks into basically a company that is looking to raise additional capital, you have to meet certain requirements and I'll send you a link to include in the show notes for that because it's either a million dollars in financial assets, including excluding real estate, or a certain income level for the past three years. And I think it's three hundred thousand. You've made three hundred thousand every year for the past three years, or as a couple, you've made five hundred thousand. Now, these are big numbers, and I get it. It's it still seems out of reach, but now they're incredible platforms like Republic. that Backstage are, Capital. Backstage Capital. I that, just contributed to that. Yes. Great. Yes. That's Arlen. Arlen. Hamilton. Hamilton. Yeah. I've been trying to get her on this podcast. I get close and then she, you know, has a million commitments. <laughs> yeah. There, I was going to say that's a, these are great platforms. I've participated as a way to get in whatever you can. You know, I yeah. think like this minimum is like a hundred bucks if you, even, but then to have it be spread out through what, you leave it to the experts to then go find those those next unicorns. Yeah, and you can invest in companies directly via Republic. Um, and also is iFundWomen is a great – it's a crowdfunding site. It's where – it's a portfolio company of mine. It's where some of my portfolio companies got started with a successful crowdfunding raise and then went on to raise additional capital that – I mean – at the end of the day, investing is a way of just using your dollars to show your values. So it doesn't even have to be, I'm investing in companies. I think being a thoughtful consumer and thinking about where your money is going. Yes, Amazon is extremely convenient. And yes, that two-day shipping is extremely helpful. But think about the, the businesses in your neighborhood that would also welcome your patronage and support. So for me, I don't buy books on Amazon ever. I, you know, buy audiobooks through Libro.fm or I, if I really want a book and this is such a good tool to help me make sure I'm buying the books I actually want, I will call in the book at a local bookstore and I have to go walk and pick it up. And that- Walk? Oh, dear God. We live in New York. And <laughs> Just kidding. One is we, yeah, it's it's a box away. Small effort. It's a it's a very small effort. Yes, I think the pandemic. Um, well, uh, two things that you men, you remind me of. I did two podcasts. One, I did a podcast with Karen Kahn, founder of mm-hmm. iFund Women. So everybody can check that out and learn more about iFund Women. And also did a podcast on, uh, well, an interview with a woman who is not spending any more money on Amazon.com. And that is a, you know, that's huge lift for many people. Not everybody can do that. But if you're interested in just learning about how to put your money more towards your values, great episodes. So you can go back in time and listen to those episodes. For me, the takeaway was I sometimes still need Amazon. But yes, I can go to the local bookstore. Even if I, I can't walk, I got to get in the car. But you know what? It's a small lift for me to be able to make a bigger impact for that bookstore. I'm not going to destroy Amazon through this act, no. but I can support the small bookstore. I guarantee you that small bookstore gets excited with every book they sell. And they will remember every conversations time. that you have with them of, oh, like I loved this book and I'm looking for something similar. I have 
like I love our local bookstores, like book culture. I'm like, they're like my Shazam. And I said, I'm I'm in the mood for a space book. And these are the ones I've read and I want fiction. I don't want to deal with this. And they're like, I got the book for you. And like walk <gasps> oh, wow. And so it's like there's a joy you get. Mm-hmm. When mm-hmm. you support a local business like that, a satisfaction that Amazon's algorithm can't sometimes can't deliver, and they are so grateful for it. Like that, this is why they work at that business, and so it's it's really satisfying. And you know, for us, we've just been we have our local toy store in our neighborhood that I go to for kids' birthday gifts. We have Westside Books, West no uh, Westside Toys, Westside Toys. Yes, we were and just the, there the other week. Oh, yeah, so good. And then I think like our neighborhood wine guy around the corner from us, like, like gets like so excited whenever he sees. Especially like, now, post pandemic, they're probably thrilled to see human beings walk into their door. A hundred percent walk through the door. But like my dad jokes, he's like, "It's time for our regular looting of your store." And Neil, the manager, walks us around. He says, "Oh, I have some things. I think you bottles. I think you'd love to try this." And he's so sweet. And he even said, "If you guys ever want to go wine tasting, give me a month's notice. I will help plan it for you." He's like, I know all these wineries. And I go, you're never going to get this like from a Wink or even a Whole Foods wine store that's four blocks up from us. So be very mindful about where you spend your money. I mean, my husband and I go through our budget and our expenses every single week. So I feel a lot better when I see fewer expenses in general, but those expenses are at our local neighborhood businesses or small businesses that are, you know, D to C ones that we support or have invested in, whatnot, versus Amazon, 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 Amazon. Because there was certainly yeah. a time, and especially when you have a young baby, like when Rocky was born, everything was Amazon. I just needed convenience. I was not going to run out and go pick up stuff. But right. by the time he hit like three months, I was going down to Albie Baby to get the things I needed. I wasn't Amazoning them. Heard that. Let's talk about your forthcoming book coming out October of this year. We're speaking The Life Lessons of Kamala Harris, How to Use Your Voice, Be Assertive, and Own Your Story. Now, I know that you are a huge fan of Vice President Harris, and I think you might have even, you know, helped her campaign a little bit. So to get this opportunity, how did this opportunity come about in the first place? I am the luckiest author alive in that Both of my books, I was approached to write by the publisher versus putting together a proposal and submitting it. It's insanely (laughs) lucky. And that it happened twice with two different publishers is like my agent was like, I don't even know what to say like (laughs) to this. I'm like, I don't know what to say. I don't like I I'm nervous of the day I have to put together. They take the whole commission when they didn't get you the book. (laughs) That's what I want to know. My my agent is a godsend. I don't think I could write these books without her. She's also, she's ghosted before. She has a credible editor's eye. So she does kind of the first pass edit as I was writing. So to make sure what we we submitted as the first draft was a strong first draft. So Kim, if you're listening, I love you so much. You're the best. Please don't leave me ever. (laughs) (laughs) But I got approached in November from an editor at Little Brown Spark who said, you know, we're really interested in doing an advice book inspired by, at the time, Vice President-elect Harris, and we think you would be the perfect person to write it. Would you be interested? And I like forwarded it to Kim and I was like, is this real? And she's like, you know, Marissa, like she's a great editor. You Let's take the call. And we did. And they said, we want you to write it. And I said, great. How much time do I have? And they're like, 
um, could you do it by the end of December? This was November. And I was like, no. <gasps> No, I, said, no, I will die. Um, my husband will leave me. I will never see my children again. <laughs> so we start, we pushed it out to February, mid February. And so I spent like three and a half months, like doing nothing but researching and writing and interviewing and writing some more. I emailed both of my, his, my two favorite history professors from college to let them know about this book and how I was doing, because I said, without your classes, there's just no way I could have done this because there wasn't an opportunity to interview any member of the Harris family or the Emma family for that matter, because they're very clear on if we participate in interviews, it looks like an endorsement and we need to really keep a clear line behind, you know, to not show any kind of endorsement or favoritism for books like this written about the vice president and you know, it was like a very big iron curtain. So all of my research and all the book was based off of public reporting, her own book, a book, another book someone read, wrote about her that came out, I think, just a month after the election. And it was a lot. It was a lot. I'm still not recovered from it. Well, Going in, you were already such a super fan. I'm sure you knew a lot already going in. You had a feeling for what you were going to discover yeah. through your reporting process. But was there something that even you blew you away or like a a life lesson? I really fell in love with her mother. I think like the best part of this research process or what I found to be so incredibly satisfying is learning more about Shamala Gobalan Harris and what a remarkable woman she was, just truly in every way. And it wasn't just that she came to the States from India to study science, but some of the experiences she had in the lab and being an Indian, a brown person with an accent are things that stories my father has told me. Like it was so similar the way she came to the States before the National Immigration Act was um, passed. And she was one of 1,000 Indians allowed in the United States every year. There was no diaspora and there was no community. It was like when my uncle came here around the same time, he came as a Fulbright scholar and it was very lonely for him. And so, you know, learning about how she raised these two girls, my dad and my uncle's other sister, Shanti, was a single mom raising my cousin who went on to the Naval Academy, is now a big poobah at a Fortune 50 company. And What's a poobah? Looks like a big boss man. Oh, I like that. I'm going <laughs> to... Grand poobah. That was a term from my favorite history professor, Sandra Joshel from University of Washington. And it's something that I've never stopped saying. <laughs> Always learning on this podcast. What can I say? <laughs> well, we cannot wait to read this book. We're so fortunate to have you come by and share, really drop some some bombs on us. I really, really appreciated all this perspective. It's real fresh. It's really needed. And keep doing you. Thanks so much to Hitha for joining us. Her book again coming out later this fall is The Life Lessons of Kamala Harris, How to Use Your Voice, Be Assertive and Own Your Story. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, share it with a friend, leave a review every Friday, including this coming up Friday. I will pick a reviewer of the week to receive a free 15 minute money session with me. And we can talk about money, but also many other things. So leave a review. I hope to hear from you. And I hope your day is so money. Money.